Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we're at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 36 for December of 2018. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave. And in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about the best space battles in genre television. Our show topics include a look at the new series Night Flyers, which began its run on December 2nd on Sci-Fi. And we'll stay in space for the second season of Mars on Nat Geo, which began on November 12th and is nearing the end of its six-episode run. Yeah, we didn't even do this on purpose, but we ended up with the space theme in December here. And we also uh, have an interview that's not space-themed, and that's with Justin Marks, the creator and a first-time showrunner. Uh, for the, the show counterpart on stars. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we introduce that interview segment later, but I wanted to issue a really quick reminder to everyone that we will be starting a new format in January of 2019, which actually I didn't mention last time may include a little bit of advertising, you know, den of geek has to get in the little monetization if they can. Um, not sure how that's going to work yet, but we'll see how that is. And hopefully it won't be too intrusive on your experience, but because the new format will include a different podcast for each of our current four segments, the discussion topic, the two show topics, and the interview. Each one will be about 20 minutes long, I would say, 20 to 25 minutes long. So it'll be nice and bite-sized, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. And in fact, we have a bonus interview coming up next week to sort of get things rolling in that sense. Um, We've done a lot of bonus interviews in the past, but that's kind of how all of our interviews will be from now on. So looking forward to our interview with Riley Dolman of Travelers, who plays Philip on that show. So uh, we're getting the ball rolling with our new format very early. And in the new year, we'll have it going and hopefully people will enjoy that, Dave. Cool. Yeah. I mean, we've been really fortunate with the people we've been able to talk to starting way back in our continuum days. So as you said, Riley Dolman was very cool, as have been everybody we've talked to. That's right. So um, we're looking forward to that. But in the meantime, one last time for the spoiler warning, we won't have to do this in future editions of the podcast. But if you need to skip around to various topics of interest or if you need to avoid spoilers, here are the time codes for today's discussions. Best Space Battles 303 Night Flyers 2223 Mars 4156 Counterpart Interview 6125 Now, Dave, our discussion of space battles is probably pretty spoiler-free. I would hope a lot of our selections are pretty old, but I have so much looked forward to doing this discussion topic with you because it was a lot of fun to put together and and do some research and remind myself of some of the great special effects and just circumstances that led to some of the best space battles in genre television. Well, yeah, and of course the special effects get better as technology improves and things become cheaper for the effects people to do. But still, as you said, some of the ones we're going to talk about are a little bit dated in terms of chronology, not dated, though, in terms of look and impact. No, they're still – it's interesting. Some of the older ones still hold up pretty well, actually. (laughs) All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and start with Battlestar Galactica And I guess what's really considered the pilot, season one, episode one, titled 33. And this airs with the events of the three night miniseries in the past. So the Cylons have attacked 
essentially wiped out the human race, save for the ships that are already in orbit doing whatever it is they're doing. Galactica is the only military vessel that's still survived, and they have a civilian fleet that they're now escorting. And then what happens in 33, they come under Cylon attack every 33 minutes. And their only hope is to make continual FTL jumps. Oh, yeah. And after 130 hours, 237 jumps, they realize that one of the civilian ships is left behind. Obviously, this is devastating to Adama, but the episode also speaks to the impact it has physically and emotionally on the members of the crew because every 33 minutes, there's just no rest. And what makes this episode so great is that it establishes the human cost of this kind of mission, which is really a mission that just was sprung on the crew who thought they were really just participating in a decommissioning ceremony for the Galactica. The civilians who were on board for those festivities so that virtually everybody is woefully ill-prepared. Fortunately, you've got a commander like Adama. And the episode also then establishes the coming conflicts between the military and the government as depicted by Adama and President Rosalind. So most of the battle is seen from inside the Galactica. We don't get a whole lot going on outside. It's the impact of what these battles really do to the people that are involved. Well, that's interesting you picked that one from that standpoint, because I was wondering about that when I was selecting my choices, how much of it should be with regard to the drama inside. I remember that whole sequence being very tense, and it really set the tone for the series at large. But yeah, Battlestar Galactica had so many great dogfights. Oh, yes. But it would be hard to pin down one singular one. So I think you made the right choice in terms of kind of making it more uh, thematic or, or indicative of what was to come. So that was a good choice. Well, I'm going to start with uh, my newest example, and that's from The Expanse. Season two, episode two was called Doors and Corners. And there were probably two or three or four different space battles I could have chosen from The Expanse. This one is the assault on Thoth Station, which I thought was really great. Thoth Station was where they were holding the um, protomolecule for a while. And the Rosinante wanted to sneak up on it and take care of things. And, you know, I may get some crap for not picking CQB, which is close quarters battle from season one. But for my money, this sneaky approach to the spin station that was housing the protomolecule was by far the most exciting battle of the expanse so far. That is, there might be more to come, but the Rosinante in this one hid in the shadow of the freighter guy Molinari, and it kept the station's defenses occupied while the belters basically dropped two FedEx shipping containers (laughs) that had a bunch of soldiers in it, including uh, Miller. So it was a very, very tense moment, but also just showing Alex and his skills as a pilot operating under heavy G forces, you know, because gravity was such a big player in this series and Amos throwing caution to the wind and going to fix a broken thruster as holes are punched through the hull. You can see the tracers, going through because you know there's no shields like in star trek on the expanse you know the projectiles actually penetrate 
the hall at high speed and and go out the other side. <laughs> right. And, and as you know, and I'm certainly not surprised and, and pleasantly so that you chose The Expanse because that's one of those shows that while I really dug the story and, and continue to enjoy it, the characters took a while for me to really bond with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Amos is probably the one that a lot of people glom onto first. Alex has some work on, in that score to do. I think Alex is an underutilized character and here he really shows his grit. And the, the irony of this magnificent boarding operation is that once they're on board the station, the entire defense consists of a bunch of rent-a-cops with gel rounds. So here was this magnificent space battle, and then they take over the station quite easily once they're on board. But definitely one of my favorite space battles from The Expanse. Cool. Now, you mentioned possibly getting crap for not choosing a certain episode, and yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of our friends that would say, how can you not choose something from Firefly, even though you've got a limited base from which to choose and i know we always say sci-fi fidelity is about television i'm going to serenity which is actually the firefly movie okay (laughs) i'll allow it (laughs) okay now the battle that i'm talking about is the battle with the reavers and if you don't know who the reavers are then clearly you don't watch firefly and you shouldn't (laughs) be listening to this podcast that's right. right now the reavers are arguably the scariest creatures in the universe. Yeah. They are subhumans who live on the fringes of the universe. And it's often talked about how they got to that point. We know they're capable of the most unspeakable acts, cannibalism for one. Avoiding them is critical to survival. And, and certainly Captain Malcolm Reynolds does his best to avoid the Reavers at all costs. And we see in an earlier episode of firefly that they do just kind of sneak by you know you mentioned the roshanate's approach in your battle about just kind of sneaking hiding behind another ship and that's sort of what they do in an earlier episode but here they don't really have that option because i'm talking about the battle above mr universe's planet and mr universe is such (laughs) a great character yeah in and of himself but if you think about what zoe says it sort of crystallizes any time you come face to face with the Reavers. If they take the ship, they'll rape us to death, eat our flesh, and sew our skins into their clothing. And if we're very, very lucky, they'll do it in that order. <laughs> oh, man, that is such a classic line. I and then it. the other thing that's cool about the Reaver fleet is that no Reaver ship is the same because they're all just cobbled together. Right from various parts here and there frankenstein ships exactly so there's that cool factor there and serenity in this case has to lure the reaver ships in and they end up getting destroyed by the alliance fleet which again malcolm reynolds if you know firefly that's part of his crew's mantra is to just stay away from the alliance let us do our own thing and, you know, we'll leave you alone. You leave us alone. Of course, that's not generally what happens. But there are some just great visuals in this battle scene. And the fact that it is the Reavers. And look, I, let's be honest. We're pretty certain that Mal and his crew are going to be OK. Yeah. <laughs> but still. No, it's still very exciting. Yes. Yes. Now, I, I think it's great that most of our examples are a little bit 
into the vault. And I had to say in my research, I, I was glad to see that you're about to talk about a Star Trek example because I was dreading having to comb through <laughs> all, the many choices you could have picked from that series and its spinoffs. But I have to say, for my money, no one did space battles quite like Babylon 5. And in season four, episode 15, which was called No Surrender, No Retreat, which was a very appropriate title for a space battle. It was right at the height of the civil war between the resistance forces of the Army of Light and the President Clark loyalists of the Earth Alliance. Now, this battle, this civil war gave the show many, many great battles. But this one's my favorite. It's the Battle of Proxima Three. And throughout Babylon 5, if you're not familiar with the show, I, I um, kind of watched it live at the time and then stopped watching it, had to come back and watch it again later to finish it off. But one thing I noticed when I came back to it after some years had passed is that Babylon 5 did a great job of illustrating these dogfights, kind of like Battlestar Galactica did, but it was much more Star Wars-like with their dog fights. In fact, some of the ships in Babylon five and, and and certainly in this battle of Proxima three had that X wing configuration. So it almost looked like it was a straight ripoff from star Wars for, for some of those scenes. But what I really liked is that not only did you have the dog fights and the, the battles ship to ship, which blew up individuals, but you also had the larger volleys between the larger battleships and then, you know, an occasional random collision of a disabled single pilot spacecraft with some key component, you know, like the engine of a bigger ship, which would have catastrophic results. And it kind of reminded me, like I said, of star Wars in that vein, but just that civil war between the two factions of earth was just such a huge part of Babylon five. And it almost was game of Thrones in terms of its scale of its political machinations that, you know, you could really dive deep into the into the war strategies that came up in Babylon Five, and and I think Proxima Three was one of the best ones, right in the, towards the end of the run, season four. Well, you know, you mentioned the whole idea of dogfights, and then of course it takes me back to Battlestar Galactica. Should I have chosen one of those? And and it always takes me back to that one episode where the Raptors. I forget which one whether it was Leah Dama or whether it was Starbuck, but they ended up flying connected together, but they were inverted. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many ones like that, that you could say were cool space dogfights, but weren't necessarily full scale battles. Exactly. And that's why they got disqualified. But you have Star Trek for your final one. I do. Well, Deep Space Nine. And it's an episode entitled Sacrifice of Angels. Now, in, in full disclosure, I don't watch and haven't watched Deep Space Nine. But as you alluded to earlier, sometimes we feel like we've got to do a little bit of research. We can't operate solely from memory. There are a lot of great battles out there. Oh, a lot of our discussion topics have been based solely on research. <laughs> right. And this is one that just kept cropping up time and time again so i thought all right let me dig a little deeper into it and it's season six episode six and the deep space nine space station has been taken by the dominion and the federation has ordered an assault to take it back and this is the final episode of a seven episode arc that began with the season five finale which 
gosh, makes me think I'm watching early Doctor Who with these seven, <laughs> six, seven parters. Well, also, Star Trek was famous for doing real cliffhanger endings where you'd have to wait a long time to figure out how things would end up. And so, yeah, they would begin an arc with a season finale and then you'd have to wait for the next season to see how it all ended up. Right. And in this case, Cisco has been ordered to retake the station, which is a pretty formidable task. And the battle lasts virtually the entire episode. And, and certainly that's one of those things that's relatively unusual. And, and I don't know about you, but I'll put a stopwatch to fight scenes and, <laughs> yeah. and you know you know from podcasting with me i do not like extended fight scenes or action sequences here we've got one that lasts the entire episode <laughs> yeah. which, which is similar to the battlestar galactica one that i did earlier 33 but we've got a clever misdirection ruse Worf leads a klingon fleet and they throw in a vision from a bajoran prophet and it, it is one of the most intense ds9 episodes and i I think what these kind of battle sequences show us the ones that last an entire episode or a long extended period is the human drama as well oh of course yeah and the fallout from it and that's a great segue into our final example which comes from andromeda because i was going to put dark matter in the, for a long time in my notes, I had Dark Matter, and I was trying to choose a good uh, scene from Dark Matter, and I realized their space battles aren't protracted. They're usually, like you mentioned with the Battlestar Galactica example, mostly happening in the ship and being referred to. And I think Andromeda and Deep Space Nine, Babylon 5, a lot of these examples come from an age when you could have these extended special effects sequences, and there was a budget for that. So I think um, in that sense dark matter was at a disadvantage but i had to include from season one episode six angel dark demon bright and if you haven't watched andromeda it's based on a very core piece of narrative which is that dylan hunt the captain of the andromeda was trapped in the event horizon of a black hole and as a result as he had to try and escape it by the time he got out, he lost 300 years. So there's, there was this whole Rip Van Winkle premise for the show that allowed the Andromeda to be a unique ship because in those 300 years, the Commonwealth, which is sort of like the Federation in Star Trek, which was what Dylan Hunt fought for. He was the one of the captains of the fleet. Well, now he's the only one with a ship. Right, because the Commonwealth has fallen. Right. And so Angel Dark Demon Bright was a very early episode season one episode six like i said that actually gave him an opportunity to change history very early on you would think they would have saved this perhaps for a future season but what the episode did was it depicted a massive battle with the nietzscheans which are kind of like a human break-off race that was betrayed in the fall of the commonwealth they threw their planets at the magog as kind of an appeasement. And so the Nietzscheans were none too happy about that. So apparently a year after Dylan's disappearance, the Nietzscheans fought back against the Commonwealth and Dylan had some really tough decisions to make. So not only did you have this really massive battle being depicted across the Horsehead Nebula, or I'm sorry, the Witchhead Nebula, because this was the battle of Witchhead, the amount of strategy that Dylan needed to maneuver the Nietzscheans to a very specific spot to inflict maximum damage. And the fact 
that Tyr Anasazi, who himself is a Nietzschean serving on board the Andromeda Ascendant, remembers this moment from his own race's military history. And then to top it all off, the amount of sacrifice that Dylan had to have to specifically try not to reclaim the Commonwealth. <laughs> this version of history had to play out in order for them to have a chance against the Magog. That's what put this one on my list because it had so many levels of drama, not only the visual aspect of it, but the consequences for the characters and the universe at large. I mean, man, the stakes don't get higher than that. Well, no. And if you recall, at this point, Tyr is not even close to buying into Team Andromeda, and he still views Dylan with a very skeptical eye. And in fact, it's going to be quite a while. So you throw that in there as well. That's right. So I think that's a good one to end on because I'm not saying necessarily that's the most epic space battle, but it's certainly got the most depth to it. So hopefully you enjoyed our examples. We do have a couple coming to us from social media. Christopher Bork on Facebook mentioned the battle over new Caprica in season three of Battlestar Galactica. And he also wanted to mention the invasion of the Ori in season nine of Stargate. And he's guessing on the, on when it was placed, but the invasion of the Ori was one he wanted to mention. And Michael Keller said in Star Trek deep space nine, the race between the Federation retaking the station and dominion, clearing the minefield to reopen the wormhole. He might be referring to the same episode as you. I'm not sure. (laughs) Sounds like it. And on Twitter, we actually heard from one of our fellow podcasters out there. Uh, There was one for, the show dark matter called blink drive podcast. And they wanted to make sure we included the season three finale called nowhere to go of dark matter, which did include some explosions and some ships flying around. Not quite as epic as some of the space battles we mentioned, but definitely dark matter was on my list for quite a while. And Carolyn Sai also wanted to mention that dark matter and the expanse both had some epic battles in more recent years. So thanks for those of you who joined us on social media for this discussion. But let's go ahead and get into our show topics. And Dave, we're going to start off with one that I think we are a bit split on in terms of our opinion, and that's Night Flyers on sci-fi. What did you think? Well, you know, you and I had talked once the screener became available a few weeks ago, and, and you had seen it earlier than I did. And as you said, I think we we viewed it differently although if i recall correctly you told me that your viewing conditions were not optimal yeah i was at new york comic-con in a vast hall with a bunch of other people and yeah it just was uncomfortable seats and i was tired and you know i didn't really want to be there but i just think that i'm not someone who enjoys horror in space except for maybe the alien movies that's about it right Well, Night Flyers is based on the 1980 novella by George R.R. Martin, who also serves as an executive producer on the project. And it's produced by Universal Cable Productions, co-produced by Netflix. And, you know, you may know George R.R. Martin from the little known series Game of Thrones. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Jeff Bueller wrote the adaptation for television, and he is the showrunner and executive producer. Now, uh, a short story collection of the same name was released in 1985 that includes the novella. And then there was a 1987 film adaptation of said work. So here we are in 2018, giving it another shot. Now, the premise of Night Flyers is that we're in 2093 
man hopes to make contact with a mysterious alien race at the edge of our solar system. And a group of maverick scientists and a powerful telepath embark on an expedition aboard a ship named the Night Flyer. Now, we learn sort of in an offhand manner that Earth is dying, and we don't really know exactly what what has happened, whether it's viral or environmental. But the hope is that the alien race that they're trying to contact will share its technology and enable us to save the planet. And that's the, the interesting thing about the premise is that it almost seems like they had been trying to figure out what this alien race was doing on the edge of the solar system even before the shit hit the fan with with the environment. So this was kind of like, well, we've got this other intelligence out there. Perhaps they know something that can help us. And so they tried to combine their two problems into one solution. Right. And, you know, as you said, that they have been tracking this race and, and now seems like as good a time as any. So they're racing towards first contact when terrifying and violent events begin to occur, which caused the once tight knit crew to mistrust each other. And it's not long before their main mission becomes survival. Now, look, Michael, we've seen this story before. Yeah. So it's all going to boil down to how they handle it because we're just talking about the one episode and they're airing it in an interesting fashion. There were 10 total episodes that will air Sunday through Thursday for two consecutive weeks beginning December 2nd. Well, I guess in that sense, a few episodes have aired, but you're only going to talk about the premiere. Yes. Right. right. Okay. So is this an event series? I guess. Yeah. I don't know. People might not consider it a very good sign that sci-fi chose to air it this way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not gotten some uh, good reviews. There are some people out there in the critical side of things that have enjoyed it. Right. Now, we're going to talk about episode one, All That We Left Behind, written by Jeff Bueller, who, as I said, is the creator and wrote all 10 episodes. So we get this opening sequence. And again, we've seen this before, but the acting is pretty solid all throughout this episode. Yeah, the opening sequence is the anchor for this episode. I mean, I think the opening sequence was the best part of the episode in some sense, and then it got a little confusing for me after that, but really enjoyed the tension in the in the opening. Well, right, and we're presented with Dr. Agatha Matheson who's struggling to record a message warning others of the dangers inside the night flyer warns them not to come aboard. In fact, she says, don't allow the night flyer to return to earth. And as she's attempting to do this, Rowan, and at this point in the story, we don't know really who either of these characters are and, and what their roles are, which we then learn because uh, we, we flash back to what led them to this point, but he's pursuing her with an ax, which Anytime that happens, Michael, I don't know about you, but I go back to Jack Nicholson and The Shining, and there are certain weapons that are just totally terrifying, and this is one of them. And that comes across, as you said, the tension in this scene really comes across as being genuine. He's destroying everything in his wake in this lab, and we're wondering at this point, does he mean to kill her? Well, finally, she isolates herself in an airlock, and we assume she's gone there either for safety 
or maybe with the plan of luring him in and then spacing him. But no, instead, she cuts her own throat with a handheld circular saw, and we've got blood spurting everywhere. Well, that's what's so weird about this is that they're showing us the conclusion Yes. That we must at some point get to. And so I haven't seen past the premiere, but I'm interested to know if people have watched further episodes, how long does it take to get to what we just saw? (laughs) Right. And and certainly we immediately question what happened to the ship's psychologist and Rowan to reach this point. And and as you said, it'll be interesting to see how long that takes. Now, I'm just going to kind of touch on the different characters because it is an interesting crew that they have put together and you've got this core group of scientists who are essentially running things and then a bunch of lower level crew people who mm-hmm. don't like being told what to do by the brainiacs well especially since there's different levels of prejudice against those with telepathic powers (laughs) right and perhaps with good reason as we find (laughs) out but dr carl debrannon played by owen mackin is the head of the science end of the mission and for all intents and purposes he seems to be in charge of the overall mission outside of captain eris who played by david ajala who we interviewed way back when yeah for falling water oh there you go okay (laughs) but debrannon has been working towards this mission his whole life. And and again, we talk about the human cost of things, and, and a lot of that comes out in the show. You're going to talk about Mars. For him to go on this mission means leaving his wife and young daughter behind for a minimum of two years. And look, you and I have watched enough sci-fi space shows. If they say two years, it's probably going to be five. <laughs> That's right. And we see him six months later engaging in a VR simulation with his daughter. And and again, at first, we're not sure. Is this a flashback to an actual moment? And uh, okay, I I guess the way I took this at first, I thought, all right, you're just showing off with your special effects. But on the other hand, I guess I feel like something like this has got to become a staple of long-term missions like this. Like the holodeck on Star Trek. Exactly. Just so that you can retain whatever sanity you might lose. Um, The Vulcran. This is the alien race that they are in search of making contact with. And I guess on the one hand, what comes across to me in this whole endeavor is that what makes the human race think they even want to see us? Right. And it seems to be a move of desperation. They have no way to communicate with them. They've already been trying to send signals out to this alien race with no response, complete indifference. Yes. I mean, so it, what makes them think? I mean, I guess they have Thale, the telepath on board, to maybe try some kind of psychic contact. But at the same time, there's no real strategy here. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we're not sure exactly what he hopes to acquire from the race other than technology that's going to save the earth. Right. It's not like they're going to just say, Oh, here's what you do. And and they give him a recipe book for (laughs) fixing their problems. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Right. But the whole, you know, mankind's self-importance in the universe. Yeah. Really can't be ignored at this point. And none of them really even see it, especially to Brandon. Now we've mentioned, 
the telepath on board, and his name is Thale, played by Sam Strike, and he's what's called an L1. Now, one of the things that doesn't really come clear in this first episode is whether or not all telepaths have these violent tendencies. I'm assuming no, but the crew just simply knows there's a telepath on board and is freaked out by it. Yeah, it's left up in the air as to whether or not the violent tendencies come along with the power or whether the prejudice that they experience, the oppression that they receive on Earth and in space, causes them to lash out in retaliation. I mean, here they've got this great power and they're treated like dirt. And of course, they're going to use it to defend themselves. So I think the L1 might refer to the most powerful type of telepath that's available. Perhaps there's L2s and L3s that are lesser. I'm not sure. But uh, certainly you have to question whether or not the mental state has degraded because of their powers or as a result of their treatment. Okay. And one of the most compelling aspects of the episode is the conflict between Dr. Matheson, who's really on board to control Thale, and DeBrannon, who has brought Thale aboard because he thinks he'll be able to communicate with the aliens. And he's pretty darn confident that things are going to go okay with Thale, which once we meet Thale, why the hell would you think that? (laughs) Exactly. And it's not just a reaction to the goons that are on board, because certainly there's some problems with people instigating things for sure. But even so, there was definitely going to be a disaster, even if there hadn't been some chuckleheads on board (laughs) well yeah and and when we have malfunctions particularly when mel is in the uh, tank it raises the question whether or not thale caused it and matheson oh he doesn't have those powers he can't interrupt the ship communications or he can't interfere with the daily workings of the ship well apparently he can well that's the thing i think they're purposely trying to set up a conflict where the automatic conclusion is going to be that Thale is responsible because of the mental nature, the hallucinatory nature in some cases of what's going on. But I think the audience probably concludes very early that maybe the Vulcan are doing this and Thale is just a scapegoat uh, and not even at a witting scapegoat. Like they don't mean to blame him. He's just in the wrong place at the wrong time for some, pretty wicked powers coming from a completely different source. Right. Now, I'll talk about Captain Eris and his uh, idiosyncrasies in a second, but I I really like the fact that he steps up, we're going to suspend his brain function, figure out what the heck is going on, and if we need to boot him off the ship, we will. And you know me, I'm always for decisive action, and he's supposedly sedated, yet he escapes, And we get an idea of his power when he makes the one guy see the weapon that he's holding in his hand as a beating heart, (laughs) which he is horrified and drops it. And then, of course, we see that it's a gun that that drops on the floor. Well, that's the third option, because he was sedated. He didn't escape on his own. Someone helped him. Exactly. And I don't think that is suspected of the Vulcan, you know. So there's all kinds of subterfuge going on here. Now, we've got a character who was genetically engineered at birth 
for space travel, and that is Melantha or Mel, played by Jodie Turner-Smith. My favorite character. Yeah, I was going to say, certainly <laughs> one of my favorite characters. And she seems to be under the, and I'm making air quotes, watchful eye of the captain, <laughs> Yeah, who, again, I, I guess I'll go back and forth a little bit. Captain Roy Aris, played by David Ajala, he never appears in person. He only appears via holograms. We learn he's never been on Earth, and we learn that he basically spies on his crew. I mean, there's really no other way to put it. Right. But they seem to be aware of that. In fact, Mel kind of teases him by undressing in front of a camera that she suspects is active, which we <laughs> learn that is, in fact, active. And she tells Lamy, who, who's one of the other crew members, that she's never felt helpless until the incident in the tank, which we assumed it was Thale, and that you saved my life, she tells Lamy. And then we get, you know, Mel coming on to Lamy, knowing that Eris is watching her. Is that why they do it? Well, I'm not sure what Mel's up to because Lamy clearly has a crush on, on Mel. And it's almost a manipulative a bit on her part. Right. And Lamy, played by Maya Ashet. She's human, but she's got modifications so that she can jack into and communicate with the ship, which is a pretty cool concept. I I think we've probably seen that in some show at some point before, but she's incredibly socially awkward. As you said, it's pretty clear she has a crush on Mel, but when she jacks into the system, she discovers that the aliens have shifted course, which we now learn is going to add five months to the journey. Of course, just like he said, the captain's estimate of reuniting with his daughter right. <laughs> has just gotten longer. Right. And then DeBrannon tells her to wipe the data. So, of course, one of the questions that, that's raised, well, why? What, what are you trying to hide? And then when she jacks into the system later after Thale escapes, a voice hijacks her, and we hear this really creepy, get out. Which I assume is the Vulcan, but I'm not sure. <laughs> right, because is it the system? I don't know. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. I guess that's my main criticism of this show, if I can jump to my opinion, because... It's funny that David Ajala is attached to this because Falling Water fell into the same trap, which is being so esoteric with its mysteries that you don't know what's going on and not in a fun mystery solving kind of way. There's just too much questioning of what's real and what's not, especially 
when the captain is in those simulations with his daughter and all of a sudden it starts going horribly, horribly wrong uh, with some pretty horrific images associated with it. So I'm not a big fan of that. I don't like constantly questioning what's going on, what's real, what's an illusion and trying to make sense of that kind of thing. Well, then you definitely should not watch The Haunting of Hill House. Uh oh, <laughs> I was going to watch that. <laughs> well, I'm just Uh-oh. just saying. Okay. Um, now uh, we both mentioned Mel as being perhaps our favorite character, but but I forgot about Rowan, played by Angus Sampson, and he's a xenobiologist. Which, looking it up on the computer, has an interest in, in the origins of life, and he is afraid that they will find alien life. And what I really love about Rowan is this dichotomy between being afraid they'll find it and thinking the mission is a bad idea, thinks the aliens know we're out there, simply don't want to make contact. He he says we're a virus. But then from a pragmatic stance, he just says, yeah, but I want to see what they look like. Yeah. And I, I love that about him. So well, and that's the thing. We like him as a character. And yet we know from the opening sequence that he's going to end up being Jack Nicholson in The Shining. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, we're left with a number of questions about Thale, for instance, and, and what malfunctions he really was responsible for. Clearly, it's never a good thing when the crew doesn't trust its leadership. And what is the true goal of the mission? It's almost giving us that feeling that making contact isn't really the goal of this mission. What do we know about this alien race they're going to meet? Uh, Virtually nothing nothing at this point. (laughs) Yeah. And then we're left with Murphy on fire, fail on the loose, and the possibility (laughs) that something or someone has infiltrated the ship's core system. So uh, the acting, as I said earlier, I think is pretty solid. That's true. I certainly understand where you're coming from that, There are so many mysteries out there that some of them almost feel like they're just deliberately placed there to confuse us. Well, not to mention they do a lot of jump scares and it's like, well, did that have a purpose or was that just to create a mood? And, And I don't like having, you know, random scenes that are just geared towards horrifying us and don't really serve the story. Nope. But maybe it's just because I'm not a fan of that style of horror i'm not sure so you know if i was giving it a letter grade and we don't usually talk about it in these terms i mean i'd give it a b i thought it was a pretty solid pilot episode all right i yeah i'd stick it at a c minus c proper perhaps but i'm interested to see what happens with the show based on how it's being aired whether or not people are following along with it right now or whether they're going to binge it later (laughs) so it might end up being an event series like you said so Interested to see what people's opinions are out there, but I'm not sure if it's just you and me, Dave, that have enjoyed Mars on Nat Geo among our listening audience. I know there's a few people out there that have have enjoyed it, but it's really just kind of a niche interest that you and I have both gotten into just from our interest in more realistic space travel. And for me, Mars in particular as a planet has always held a certain amount of fascination for me. Yeah, I'm really loving it. I mean, there are some flaws to it and and i guess some people might not see them as flaws the the heavy-handedness of the non-fiction sequences for me is something i could probably do with a little less of i understand they have to have it but yeah well one thing that i think we can say about mars 
as a progression from season one to two is that they have lightened up on the nonfiction, not from the political standpoint, because like you said, their message is very heavy handed, but in terms of its inclusion and its intrusion on the story, there was much more of an even 50, 50 balance in season one. And now the nonfiction has gone way into the background and there's much more emphasis on the story. But for those of you who don't know, Mars on Nat Geo does blend a story about a future mission to Mars with present day experts talking about what it will take to get there, drawing some parallels to our current world. And this season in particular, they seem to focus on climate change quite a bit. But as of this moment, four of the six episodes have aired. The show premiered on November 12th, and we're only going to be talking about episodes one through four, which are the ones that have aired. The setup is in those that first half. So it's five years later than the events of season one. We're in April of 2042. And what's going on now with the burgeoning colony is that they're trying to print mirrors to stick them in space and warm the planet up a bit, basically forced global warming to make things a little bit more habitable, terraform the planet, in other words. So science has been the purpose up until now, but not only do we now have a Chinese space station in orbit, which tends to be very cooperative with the Olympus station, as it's called now, but there's also now a private corporation coming to the planet called Lucrum, who is there for profit alone. And you really have the tone set very early on in the season because in the opening scene, as the Lucrum ship reaches the planet, they kind of have some of their heat shield and the debris from their landing kind of land all over Olympus Town and its surroundings (laughs) in kind of a very haphazard manner. So it really kind of shows that this is not necessarily going to be a cooperative setup that this corporation has with the scientific expedition that's been there so far. And so they don't even share their mission plan. They just share their arrival time and their place. And Lucrum has a completely different mission. The people that serve there only serve a four year term. It's not long haul, which changes the feel of it a little bit. And a commander, Kurt Harrell comes to meet the original team He's kind of cordial, but he's also throughout this series, you sort of get a sense he's a bit misogynistic. He says he'll clean up, but he needs immediate access to Olympus Town's power and water and points out that they're required by treaties to share because they're a government entity, whereas, you know, they don't have to share anything as a corporation. So it's kind of a one sided relationship from the very start. And Hannah, who's in command, of course, still. Uh, played by G. Hay, is wanting to run it up the chain, chain of command from the very start. So a contentious relationship from the beginning. Right. And it's not as if she's unaware of the treaty. It's just that his manner in presenting it, oh, yeah, we almost killed a few of your people with our debris that was carelessly <laughs> uh, rained down on you. And by the way, we need water and power and we need it now. That's right. And they have no choice but to agree. So. There's a dynamic shift from that standpoint. We also have, back on Earth, a completely different Secretary General. June is, in fact, the, uh, you know, Hannah's twin, no longer Secretary General. She's actually on her way to Mars. And Leslie Richardson, who you may recall, was the one who lost her husband, Paul, to kind of a insanity that overcame him as he opened up the airlocker. I can't remember exactly what happened, but uh, it wasn't good. And she 
is a more political force back on Earth, maybe not quite as forceful as June and not quite as simpatico with Hannah as June, her twin, would have been. So she's forced to play nice with Lucrum CEO on Earth, who is at odds with the politics of the situation throughout the season and always is pointing out how it's going to look to the general public. And early on, Leslie caves quite a bit and tells Hannah to play nice with Lucrum, and she kind of has to come to her own strength as the series goes on. But one of the arcs that I think is very interesting that comes to fruition in the th- by the third episode is that it turns out June gave up her post on Earth to come to Mars because she was dying and she knew it. And she was trying to get to Mars so she could at least be there and say she made it. And she unfortunately, she didn't quite make it. And that grief that Hannah feels for her lost twin is really key to her character development and interferes with her decision-making abilities that directly affect the plot early on. And it appears it's going to directly affect the plot with what happens at the end of episode four as well. And I I think what we do see, though, is she's handling her grief better as time goes on. And, And the question of whether she really is making poor decisions. I'm I'm not sure you could really justify that. But what I love about what they're doing here is forcing people to look at the reality of putting man on Mars, that it's going to have to be a cooperative approach between business and science. That's right. And in fact, that is what the nonfiction piece of it handles. And, and, uh, you know, perhaps I could, could go into those as we go along. I have them separated in my notes, the nonfiction pieces separately, but yeah, they definitely integrate. They're definitely uh, storylines that kind of talk about how corporations and governments work on earth currently and how that's going to translate once we get to Mars. But uh, what's interesting about Hannah's grief is that it does inform her decision quite early on, especially with what happens to Marta who carries on a storyline of her own that goes into unexpected directions because Lucrum's water pipeline is taking too long for the corporation. So they try to take a shortcut through a bio study zone. And Marta, you'll recall at the end of season one discovered life on Mars, a microbe that really kind of helped validate the mission there. And now she's under pressure to find even more. (laughs) She is kind of hit a dead end. She's not really getting anything more. She has to fight for that scientific mission that they started with. So during a party, to sort of mend fences between Lucrum and Olympus town. You know, she starts to actually flirt with one of the Lucrum employees. And there's a lot of that going on in this season. She accidentally hears that they found an aquifer underground and she immediately panics because they're going to drill it for resources. And she realizes if anywhere is going to have additional life, it's going to be where there's liquid water. So she argues with Hannah a little bit to let her go out there and get a sample or, and stop them from drilling there, but she can't do anything about it. And like I said, Hannah's grief is kind of interfering all the way up until the point where Marta has to go out on her own, defying orders basically to go out and see for herself if there's life under where they're drilling. Uh, she's been watching too much Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and she's made a connection with Mac in terms of not following orders. But but you know what I was going to ask you, because you mentioned the party, and, and I thought that was a great scene. 
and the you know crew members from Lucrum making connections with the IMSF people. Uh, do you think it plays a role in strengthening the relations between Harold and Hannah as the two commanders because they do seem to be getting on better as the yeah. series progresses? Yeah, they have some mutual respect certainly as the time goes by. But he's still a, a jerk. I mean, he even calls Marta a bitch at one point and it really comes across as he's kind of a bro but yeah not a great guy but also does actually have some cooperative moments and in fact is personally responsible for rescuing marta once she gets trapped out in the martian wilderness because of a solar flare that knocks out all the power in both olympus town and lucrum and she can't get back in her rover and that's a great bit of drama in episode three, I believe, where this kind of harkens back to some of what was going on in season one. And I think Lost in Space did this quite a bit as well, trying to survive under adverse conditions where any fault in the equipment could spell your death. Yeah. And in Lost in Space, it's up to uh, teenagers sometimes to <laughs> fix the equipment. Right. And Marta can't help but realized that she was saved by Lucrum and Lucrum kind of feels like, okay, you owe us one now, <laughs> but they don't have much time to explore that because of course she did bring back a sample and her assistant, who's kind of got a flirtatious thing going on with a Lucrum employee, you know, has some sexy times in the lab <laughs> and ends up infecting himself or infecting her, I guess, first with a virus that was awakened from the frozen tundra of Mars. And even though he says it's the same microbe we already found, either it's a different type or the one that they found earlier was dormant and this one is far from it. And they immediately get infected. This is actually the only plot line in episode four that I kind of had a problem with because I don't know that that's very realistic to think that an organism on another planet would have any level of sophistication to be able to infect a completely foreign form of life that that is earth and the humans on it okay but when you're talking about uh, having a problem in terms of believability you're, you're forgetting how they actually solve the problem there at the end oh right well i think that actually was kind of fun and very war of the worlds-esque <laughs> with you know the the common cold taking down the martians uh this one is more of the fact that okay it's a primitive virus it has never seen any of our antibiotics, so let's just go get some penicillin. Oh, wait, we don't have any. <laughs> oh, but the Chinese have some up in their space station. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool, I have to admit. But Well, I'm, I'm talking about with the speed with which everything oh, right. occurred. It wrapped up rather patly, didn't it? Yes. <laughs> well, and just even from the, the point where Marta gets her slides, puts the blood on the slides, puts it in the machine. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, I got it. Uh, yeah, okay. But actually, part of that drama is wrapped up with Javier, who's trapped in the lab at Olympus Town with the only person infected by this virus, which is Cameron, Marta's assistant. And Javier is kind of an important guy from the romance angle. So like the shipping storyline <laughs> that happens in Mars season two, which I guess there wasn't a ton of in season one. And I think they were certainly trying to add that to the mix between Amelie and Javier, where... Amelie decides, she's the doctor in the colony, she decides, I'm done. I've been here nine years. I'm going home. I miss Earth. But she neglected to tell Javier, and, and they've got a pretty serious relationship going on. 
So he is pissed that, that not only did Amelie not tell him, but Hannah didn't tell him so that he could get in shape to return to earth as well. Because of course, returning to earth's gravity, you need to be prepared for that. And it's two years until the next return trip after Amelie leaves. So by that time, you know, things will have cooled off and he won't have a chance. So I thought that was a really interesting dynamic to then introduce the surprise element of Amelie's pregnancy and the questions of what will Mars gravity or radiation do to a human infant or a human fetus for that matter. And whether or not she chooses to go in the ship back to earth, what will seven months in zero G do? and the radiation that a ship in space would, would take on. So whether it's born in space or whether it's born on Mars, it's a big question. If it was born on Mars, it would never be able to leave. Its development would kind of cripple it for a full G of gravity. Yeah. So I love that plot line. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because again, and I think a lot of these plot lines force us to realize the realities of colonizing Mars. It's not going to be life on Earth just somewhere else. There, there are so many other decisions you have to make. But I don't know how you felt about, Dave, the, the nonfiction elements of it were scaled back in an effective manner. I think that was the right choice to make. But as a result, they worked well at times, but they were forced in, especially in the viral outbreak episode, and they were all centered around climate change, which I don't feel like had a whole lot to do with the Martian colonization, especially since on Mars, you're going to have to do climate change on purpose. So in that sense, it was a little weird for me. Well, yeah. And I guess the sequence with the anthrax and these animals that are their bodies become exposed after all the melting. I guess on the one hand, I'm thinking like, all right, what has that got to do with Mars? Okay, I get it. You know, these dormant viruses suddenly hit people who are not prepared for it. But but is that really a problem? Is that really a problem that scientists are worried about with Mars colonization? I don't feel like it is. No, exactly. (laughs) I wouldn't think so. But the other ones are a little bit better. You know, they compare the people who are working in the Norwegian Arctic mining oil from very adverse conditions and whether or not, you know, progress is possible without exploiting the area. And also the fact that it's very dangerous to drill oil in the Arctic, very similar to what it would be like on Mars. So I especially enjoyed that first episode where they show a worker on the Goliath oil field in Norway, Skyping his son because he's going to be there for quite some time. And then that's juxtaposed with Kurt Harrell watching a message from his daughter that was beamed from Earth for him to watch. So they're they're missing their children. And and see, that's an effective way to bring the nonfiction and the fiction together. Oh, absolutely. But then you've got, you know, Greenpeace attacking some of the <laughs> the oil platforms. I'm not sure how much that was a parallel with Marta and her rebellion against Lucrum. I guess it kind of fits a little bit. What I thought was interesting is in that part of the nonfiction in episode two, I think Newt Gingrich, of all people, gave us the best line of the series through episodes one through four. He says, preservationists are moving against the tide of history. What right do you have to deny the future? 
they get drowned by progress. And I think that's a very realistic point of view. Uh, Maybe not necessarily in terms of uh, what's going on on Earth, but certainly with Mars and the asteroid belt and things like that, they're going to get exploited. There's absolutely no way to prevent that. So fighting against it, the way these Greenpeace fighters are doing, they're not doing anything. They're making a statement, certainly, but it's going to happen. There's no, there's no stopping it. Well, and he points that out. At what point in history has progress been stopped? Yeah, never. never. <laughs> exactly. So I thought that was very interesting. And then there was a little uh, sideline in, in episode three where there was some scientists on the Greenland ice sheet uh, going after data with regard to climate change. That was kind of fun from the parallels with Marta as well. And the fact that, you know, you need scientists who almost love science more than people (laughs) and are willing to risk everything the way Marta was. You have to be immune to disappointment because as Bill Nye says, those are the kind of people we want going to Mars. And I thought that was good. That was a little bit more understated than some of the other ones. But like you said, the one with anthrax being uncovered in the Yamal Peninsula due to climate change, bit of a stretch trying to tie it in with the virus plot, you know, which happens to be a very common one among sci-fi shows and just watching people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and others try and make the discovery of viruses on Mars sound like it was an actual concern just felt like it was a little off for me, but say lovey. Yeah. Well, my biggest disappointment is we didn't get to see Elon Musk smoke weed. (laughs) Yeah. Elon Musk was a bigger part of, Season one. Well, you, uh, you wonder if that had an impact on ha- yeah. how much they put him in season two. <laughs> Maybe. Well, because SpaceX was a big part of season one and they really didn't explore that aspect. And I think that might have been a mistake to. Yeah. Scaling it back was great. But focusing specifically on climate change versus space exploration, I think, may have been a little bit misguided. But but I still enjoyed the fiction plot so much more in season two that it doesn't matter because uh, I, I loved the whole uh, realistic aspect of it. So if you are checking out Mars on Nat Geo, we've still got two episodes to go and you know, the big finale is going to have something to do with Amelie and Javier's baby and <laughs> being born and what's going on with that. I haven't seen it yet myself, so I have no predictions in that regard, but, but a great show and one that we've been enjoying, even though it's on the periphery of science fiction television. And perhaps we could say that our interview segment also involves a show that may have escaped some people's notice, but that's what sci-fi fidelity is all about, drawing attention to the unsung heroes. And Counterpart is one of those ones that I think is slipping under people's radar, and it should not be. It is one of the best shows, even though it's very nominally science fiction and more about the spy thriller aspect of it. The core of its parallel worlds is science fiction at its core. So we wanted to talk to Justin Marks, the creator of Counterpart. He took over along with Jordan Horowitz uh, as showrunner of this program from Amy Berg, who was helping out in season one. But Justin Marks in general is relatively new to the scene. We were surprised actually to learn in our research that he wrote one of our favorite one hit wonders in the form of a pilot on sci-fi called Rewind, which I know a few of our listeners have watched as well. It's a time travel series that really never came to be. They just kind of aired it as a TV movie. But Justin Marks wrote that. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I was glad you brought that to my attention because, as I told you, I had just been shifting some things around and ran across it again. 
but season two, I've, I've uh, previewed the premiere to review it for this weekend. And it's, uh, it's opening on Sunday as we record this uh, December 9th. And it's really come together and come into its own. So let's go ahead and take a listen to our interview with Justin Marks, who had a lot of great teasers to share about counterpart season two. All right, we're here with Justin Marks, the creator and executive producer of Counterpart on Stars, which begins in December. Thanks for joining us on Sci-Fi Fidelity, Justin. Uh, thank you for having me. Hello. Now, uh, this show is is something that's been distinctive for its international flavor, and Counterpart is set and filmed partially in Berlin. And I was curious, how did you decide to set the story there, and will the scope broaden to other parts of the world in season two? Uh well, I'll answer the first part. I mean, Berlin really, you know, stands allegorically at the center of our show because it's a, you know, a city that for most of the 20th century was divided into two halves. And we were always, you know, really intrigued uh, by the idea of telling a, a Cold War parable, uh, an allegory for a certain time that's harkened back to some of the tropes of the old Cold War spy genre, but, you know, took that in a more metaphysical direction. And when trying to find a city where it would take place, it really just felt like the perfect place to do it because of the long spiritual history of what Berlin represented. And I do think we have an openness to other parts of the world. I mean, the Cold War spans many parts of the world. So, you know, someday down the line, I definitely think there's a wider scope that uh, could begin to happen. All right. We're excited about that. But obviously one of the big mysteries, at least for me, that carried over from season one is the nature of management. <laughs> yeah. Will we learn more about these disembodied voices this season? Uh, let me see how I can answer it as delicately <laughs> and, and without uh, spoilers as possible, except to say yes. Uh, yes, we will. Um, in fact, no, I can go into it. In fact, uh, quite a, uh, a, a bit of our effort and work in the first two seasons has been about kind of teeing up management and teeing up the fourth floor and, and the history of the fourth floor. And the history of the Office of Interchange in general, uh, I do think, while I love leaving some things in the air, you know, for people to interpret, then other things uh, we'd like to be, you know, very straightforward about. And and the history of the Office of Interchange is something that I think we're going to get a lot of answers for this season. Oh, that's very exciting. Now, um, one of my favorite characters, and mostly from the duality standpoint, is violinist Nadia and assassin Baldwin. Yeah. And obviously with... Nadia's death, that really was a lot of Baldwin's development in season one. So did you find it difficult to sort of kill off such a great character, but still have part of her to uh, explore? Yeah, we, uh, that was, uh, it's funny. Someone asked recently about regret on this show. And that's probably one of my biggest regrets is, is, uh, killing Nadia so soon because, uh, you know, although it's hard to say, because in hindsight, it's a regret, but in the moment it felt like, we needed that to understand Baldwin better uh, and to go, you know, further in that direction. But uh, we love uh, those two characters. Baldwin is a character who caught us all as writers by surprise in the first season as we began to grow her and we found ourselves unable to let her go, um, you know, and kept her in the story. And the same thing happens in season two, albeit in a different way, uh, as we kind of, you know, reintegrate her uh, into the events of the story because we don't want to let her go. And that's something that you see happening uh, moving forward. Now, to move to Quayle for a second, now that he knows the truth about Claire, 
is there hope for their marriage? And will we get to see some of what they go through to maybe heal that wound in season two? Uh, I'm always an optimist, so I'll say, uh, <laughs> I'll say there's hope, um, but it's going to be a long journey, a uh, very long and violent journey. And I think, you know, the obstacles that they faced last year are nothing compared to what they're going to have to go through together this year on their search for what I would call truth, which is to say an honesty between themselves and an honesty around them with their world. I mean, you're talking about two fraudulent people, both paired together almost against their will. And the question really is, is, is love possible in that kind of uh, scenario? And, uh, and there's a lot of really unexpected answers. Yeah, it's interesting because it's something where they're forced together and they don't necessarily want to yeah. heal those wounds, but they might be <laughs> might have to yeah. just to work together. That's it's kind of a cool dynamic. I mean, it is truly an arranged marriage in a lot of ways and in some very unexpected ways and and yet it's not to say that love is not possible in such a marriage, but uh the question they have to answer for themselves is who are they? And that's a, that's a very difficult question for those two. Now, the end of No Man's Land Part 2 asks those still alive to put a certain amount of trust and faith in one another. So without Pope in the picture and with the, you know, the crossing kind of closed down, is there hope for a detente here, at least for those who are on the wrong side from where they originated? I think uh, I think if there is hope, they're certainly getting off on the wrong foot. You know, these are two worlds that the, the diplomatic crisis that ensued at the end of no man's land to me is one that was easily preventable uh if only both managements had been kind of honest with themselves and with each other uh about the situation but instead politics were played and the doors were closed and here's where we laid and that's allegorically i mean i think quite similar to the construction of the berlin wall in 1961 and it's a world that we wanted to inhabit from there but i think that now that those politics have played out it's going to be a while before there's any hope of real reconciliation. And I think a lot of it has got to happen before then, especially when you consider that Indigo, who, you know, kind of choreographed all this, has really only been choreographing all this to set up their real move, which is what we see playing out this season. Oh, very cool. Uh, One of the other things that I imagine must be central for season two is Howard uh, Prime being involved with Emily as she regains consciousness how much of a problem is that going to be? And does he actually want to take over our Howard's life, Howard Alpha's life, yeah. as Pope predicted? Yeah, it's such a hard thing because I, I watched Howard Prime, you know, this season interacting with Emily Alpha. And I asked the, the same question. And that's what we do as writers is, you know, there's an extent to which he needs her for intelligence, you know, so he can figure things out and so he can get home. But there's also, as was evidenced in the very first moment of the very first episode of this show, uh, not first moment, but in the first episode, this moment of, of Howard Prime taking Emily Alpha's hand when she's in the hospital bed. I think it's safe to say that there are still skeletons in the closet there and that there's still a sense of uh, feeling he holds for this woman. And the question is, is, you know, is a connection with that life going to come out the longer he spends with her? Or is he going to find his own worst tendencies starting to come out again in ways that he thought he had escaped many decades ago after his divorce? And now, of course, the other dynamic that's in the mix is the daughter of uh, these two. And obviously, because 
with Howard Alpha in detention, I guess you could say, is there still room to explore the daughter relationship or is he going to be occupied with James Cromwell most of the time? <laughs> uh, there will be. Um, you know, Sarah Bolger, who plays Anna, is very much a part of our show this season and kind of sits on one of the biggest secrets of the season, uh, which oh, I look cool. forward to uh, kind of revealing at some point. But, um, you know, we love this idea of being able to have a relationship with the grown version of a child you lost and we would never, you know, discard that for anything. So yeah, it's safe to say we're going to see plenty of Anna. Well, now let's talk about a couple of the new characters and I guess we'll start with James Cromwell's character. What can you tell a little bit about him? Um, obviously he's got some deep knowledge uh, that Howard Alpha might be able to discover more about his situation. Yeah. I, I mean, Yannick is, uh, let's just say this, spiritual warden of the prison into which Howard has been deposited uh, at the beginning of the season, this place called Echo, which was alluded to at the end of last season. Right. And it is a, a very unique black site in the counterpart world and the kind of prison that only counterpart could do conceptually because it, it deals with uh, a very unique form of intelligence gathering that I don't want to spoil. But, you know, one of Yannick's main precepts is this idea that, when confronted with another version of one's life, both cannot exist simultaneously. One must destroy the other. They, there's a vacuum that they will compete for. And, you know, Howard doesn't necessarily believe that, but I think this is the year, this is the season where, you know, he's, he's going to have to really come to terms with it. And the way Jamie Cromwell played this character is, is so brilliant and, there's so much to this character that I don't want to reveal that uh, I can't wait for people to meet him in uh, the beginning of the season. Yeah, it's great that it was teased that way. We can't wait to meet him either. And one of the other ones that really intrigues me is Betty Gabriel's character, yeah. former FBI agent Naya Temple. What can you tell us about her? Uh, well, Naya Temple uh, has kind of stepped into the role that was left empty when uh, Aldrich met his unceremonious end at the uh, end of season one. If Aldrich, as a spy hunter, represented all the old guard Cold War methodology and you know sense of like old boy network, Temple comes into this as really a breath of fresh air, as someone who knows nothing about the crossing at the beginning of her uh, of her run and is read in for the first time and has to now piece it together. But because she has no loyalties and no sense of network in this world, she's able to see things uh, through a much clearer lens, which is going to pose quite a problem for anyone who's hiding in this world, whether it be Claire or uh, Howard Prime. Uh, so we love what Betty's done to the character. She's kind of brought a very new and dangerous energy that we're really excited to show how it plays out. Well, Justin, it really seems like season two is going to be a new chapter for counterpart and we really can't wait to see. Thank you. Yeah. The season when it comes out. Thanks. No, I, I cannot wait to see the responses because we're really, there's, there's quite a few uh, huge twists coming. So I hope people are, uh, are prepared. All right. Great. Well, thanks for joining us. Cool. Thank you. All right. So Justin was very forthcoming and I hope he was able to tease some of the aspects. I know I was surprised to find that one of Dave's questions, Dave, uh, just from some technical difficulties, was not able to join us for that interview. But Dave came up with the question about uh, Nadia being killed off and and what was it like to kill off such an important character? And I thought it was great that Justin admitted that he kind of regretted that decision because they could have really made use of a Baldwin counterpart for a little bit longer. (laughs) 
Right. But I, I like the bravery that's inherent in a showrunner that's willing to do that to a, that's a great sure, character yeah. because you know, it shows that, that as a viewer, I know there are stakes in play. Right. And, you know, this show really has J.K. Simmons as its anchor and he couldn't be better suited to this role. I mean, he's right on par with Tatiana Maslany in Orphan Black in terms of his ability to portray two different characters distinctively. And I think it's worth everyone's time to check it out if you're able to get to stars, you know, through legitimate means or otherwise. <laughs> we won't judge. So uh, that was a great interview to, to share with you. And of course, like I mentioned, we've got another interview coming up in December with Riley Dolman of Travelers for a bonus. And, and I think that's really why we're doing this new format. The fact that we were talking about Night Flyers and Mars as opposed to Counterpart and Travelers is because Counterpart and Travelers are starting in the middle of the month. <laughs> and we always do our podcast at the beginning of the month. So I think you can see why uh, we decided to change the format. Yeah, it just gives us more flexibility. Right. And, and because we want to be able to talk about just one or two or three episodes, not like an entire season. So hopefully you're on board with us when we come back in January. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity and this format for Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And we've got a couple choices for what shows we're going to talk about in January. So we'll let you know, as we always do, what we end up deciding. In the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Plus, we take suggestions for future topics. Just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media, or you can send an email to scififidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week for the interview and next month for the new format. <laughs>